Good morning again. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. If you're using a pew Bible there in front of you, uh, it's page 848, page 848 in the pew Bible this morning. We're going to be looking, as I mentioned, at verses 1 through 12 in the parable of the tenants. I love that verse in Only a Holy God. Who else could rescue me from my failings? All of us have failings in many different ways. Big ways, small ways, things are difficult, we mess things up, but yet in Christ there is forgiveness, there is hope, there is salvation. Thankful for that holy God who loves us. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to come and to worship, to look at your word together, understanding that your word, the Bible, Lord, knows more about us than we know about ourselves. It shows us our sin and how we fall short and how we fail how we live our lives for our own kingdom instead of yours. And it shows us our greatest need, a need of a Savior. And it shows us how we can have that need met in Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of our sins, to be made right with you, to have a relationship with you. Lord, to live for you. Lord, we love you. Pray for all this in your Son's name. Amen. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Please follow along as I read this morning. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him, and went away. I'm sure most of you have heard the phrase, when the cat's away, the mice will play, right? I don't know if you have issues with mice in your house. We've lived in a few houses where uh, at night you can hear the mice scurrying, and my wife is always awake to tell me that she can hear them, right? Ladies, maybe you're the same way. Um, setting traps, putting out bait, trying to find the hole where they're getting in. Uh, maybe some of you have just given up and got a cat uh, to try and keep the mice away. When the cat's there, the, the mice are caught or they, they know that the, the big predator is around and so they don't try and get in. But when the cat's away, the mice will play. They'll enjoy. They'll look for food. They'll become adventurous. They'll, they'll look for things to get into. 
It's the idea of absent authority or somebody who uh, has authority over you. And, and when they are gone, all of a sudden that freedom that you think that you have goes to your head. And all of a sudden you start to do things that maybe you shouldn't be doing. Uh, this happens often with kids when mom and dad are away or aren't looking. Um, that presence of authority in their life is gone or, or they don't think it's there. And so, hey, we can do whatever we want. It's a classic illustration of being in a school classroom and the teacher's gone and you have a substitute. Oh boy, right? Um, or the teacher leaves to go get something out in the hallway or from somewhere else. Oh boy, what trouble can we get into? When the, uh, the authority is absent or not in the mind of those under their authority, there could be a denial of ex its existence. After a while, they just may flat out reject the authority. As we come to this parable here in Mark 12, it involves the issue of authority and those under authority and how those under authority respond to that authority and the way that they live their lives and the choices that they make and in a sense their faith in the one who rules over them. Now just jumping into this parable without looking at the context, we would read it and think, okay, there's a lot of they's and him's and he's. Who's, who's being talked about here? But as we come to this passage, we need to remember where we are at in Mark's gospel. Jesus is in the temple. The temple was the center of worship in Israel, in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus has come. This is the week of the Passover, the biggest feast in the tradition and the, uh, the Jewish uh, observance of the law. And they've come to Jerusalem to worship. And Jesus who's had this battle against the religious leaders, uh, the false, I didn't say false teaching, but the, the teaching that was extra, the things that the Pharisees were putting on the people that was a burden to them. Jesus confronts them in the temple and he forces out the people who are seeking to earn a buck in a place that they shouldn't. And this last time, Jesus responds to a challenge by the religious leaders. They basically said to Jesus, who do you think you are? Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus asked them a question. And we see how the religious leaders are trying to find an angle in verses 27 to 33 of chapter 11, where they can answer Jesus, but not uh, make mad the people, but yet not admit to what Jesus is asking them to. And this is where we are in chapter 12. Jesus begins by speaking a parable. And this parable directly follows what just happened. If you remember, there's not that many parables in the gospel of Mark. Uh, Matthew has quite a few parables. Luke has quite a few parables, but not Mark. Mark really just cuts to the chase. But this parable is interesting that he includes this. And it's included in uh, the other two gospels as well. The parables are stories. We love to hear stories. Uh, some of you are good storytellers. Some of you are distracted storytellers. Uh, you veer off to things that don't matter. <laughs> and you uh, kind of lose the focus. But Jesus here is directly driving home what just happened. Before when Jesus would speak in parables, he was hiding the meaning, right? He would 
speak a parable and there are some people who didn't understand it. And it was because Jesus was hiding the meaning of what he was saying for those who would understand it. But here, Jesus is using the parable to clearly communicate something to those who are unbelievers. He almost kind of flips it on its head. He is saying, hey, here's a story. Guess what? This is you guys. There's no hiding what he's trying to say here. He's making it very plain. And he begins to speak to them in parables. Who is the them? Well, it's the religious leaders. It's the scribes and the chief priests and the elders in verse 27 of chapter 11. And he uses this illustration of a vineyard and an owner and tenants. The idea of somebody who owns the land and he rents it or leases it to somebody to take care of it. Very common even today. People renting farmland from someone. You have the owner of the land and you have the renter. And as the renter farms the land and makes a profit and lives from that, and then they also pay the landowner as they have rented out to them, we see the economic transaction. Same thing here. But as Jesus is speaking, we read of these tenants, and they are not very good tenants by a long shot. <laughs> they sought to deny the authority of the landowner and to treat him very poorly. And in a sense, Jesus is saying this, is that the religious leaders are denying the authority of God and the people that he has sent. And that brings us to our big idea this morning, is denial of God's authority does not remove it from our lives. Denial of God's authority does not remove it from our lives. People will ask, where's God? I can't see God. Why should I listen to him? Well, God exists whether you believe in him or not. God's authority exists even if you don't recognize it or not. Just because you deny something doesn't remove it from our lives. How many of you are procrastinators? A few of you. I see a few hands. Thank you for your honesty. I'll raise my hand here in a little bit. Um, that was a joke there. Okay, you guys are I'm, I can be, tend to be a bit of a procrastinator. You can ask my wife that. Um, I'll do it. I'll get to it. Don't worry. I'll get there. And it's almost as if, if I just keep pushing it off, it's, it's not going to happen. It, I, it's, it doesn't exist. It still does. Denying God's authority, though it may be like we're kind of procrastinating or putting it off, saying, no, it's not there, that doesn't remove it from our lives. Though one may live denying it, at the same point, we all have to reckon with it. It's why we read from Philippians 2. Everybody at some point in their life will bow the knee to Jesus, whether it's in an act of worship or in an act of judgment. The authority of God is there. Jesus explains to religious leaders that they have been denying the authority of God who has shown his plan, his purposes, his authority through his prophets through his kings, through the judges, through all kinds of people in the Old Testament, and now his own son, but they have rejected it. And because of that, they will be judged. That which has been rejected by the religious leaders will be used by God to rule over them. So denying God's authority does not remove it from our lives. Let's look here at three ways that God demonstrates his authority or his authority is fleshed out in our lives. First off, through God's provision. God's authority is demonstrated to us 
even though we tried to deny it through God's provision. So Jesus here uses this, uh, this parable. And to get some of the characters straight, the man who planted the vineyard is the father, God, God the father. And he plants the vineyard. And the vineyard is Israel. It's the nation of Israel. There's a lot of overlap and a lot of same language from Isaiah 5, uh, where God speaks of the vineyard that he has made. And the vineyard that is growing and he's protecting it, but the vineyard is not bearing fruit. And so what is he going to do? He's going to tear down the walls and let the wicked one come and overrun the vineyard. That wicked one is Assyria and then Babylon. That's in Isaiah 5, the beginning of Isaiah 5. So this language of Israel being a vineyard is something that's very common. So God, a man who is God the Father plants a vineyard, which is in a sense the nation of Israel, and he puts a fence around it and digs a pit and, and makes a wine press and builds a tower. He, 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 he provides for it. And the tenants are the religious leaders, the people he has entrusted the care of it to. These are the religious leaders in Israel. And from time to time, we see the servants that are sent. These servants would be the prophets. These servants would be the kings. They would be the judges. They'd be the people sent by God to communicate and teach and preach and prophesy to the nation. And then lastly, we read of the owner sending his own beloved son, which is very clearly Jesus. So we'll break down all these things. But first off, God's authority is demonstrated through his provision. So a man plants a vineyard. This man is God the Father, and he plants a vineyard. This is very, uh, it's most understood to be a, a wine uh, or a production of grapes, vines, uh, grape plants, a vineyard where many different kinds of fruit along with grapes would be produced. But vineyards take time to get going. You don't just plant it and then boom, they're ready to go. It takes time for the plants to grow, to mature, to have a harvest. And there are other things around it. So he plants it. He is the one he plants the vineyard. He builds a fence around it to keep out the animals, to keep out the robbers, the people who would come and to steal and plunder. And he digs a pit for the wine press. So not only does he build and plant the vineyard, he also provides for the production of the fruit of the vineyard. So the, uh, the production of wine, the, of the fruit of the vine. And he built a tower, something to, to look over and to uh, survey over the vineyard. So the man is the one responsible for planting, for building, for protecting, for giving what is needed for the full production of the fruit. This is all from the man. God's authority is demonstrated in our lives through his provision. God's authority in our life is demonstrated through his provision. The Father has given everything necessary to be fruitful. He has done everything. We are not the source of this provision. The Lord is. The tenants are not the source of the provision, but the man is. Israel and the worship in the temple was not established by the religious leaders, but by God. You go all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12. Who does the calling? Does Abraham call up God and say, hey God, I heard you're looking for somebody to start a new nation. I'd like to put in my application. No, 
God goes to Abraham and says, I choose you to be a father of many nations. I choose you to be one who through the whole world is going to be blessed. I choose you that I'm going to build my own nation. God is the one who provides. Throughout Genesis, we see that in the lives of the patriarchs. We see that in Exodus when God takes the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And all of a sudden, they're there at the Red Sea. And Moses isn't like, hey, I got an idea. (laughs) God says, no, Moses, stick your staff in the water and see what happens. Sea parts. Then they're there wandering in the wilderness, and the people are complaining. Moses even complains. And yet God is providing again and again and again. We see God's provision to the nation of Israel. Throughout the history, we see judges that are given. We see the prophets that are sent. But the people, the religious leaders, do not receive them. Sometimes they do, but generally they reject what God has been doing. God's provision. It's clear in the nation of Israel and their history, but it's also clear in our lives. God's provision. This is important because... We are not the source of these things in our life. The Lord is. And this is important because this is the basis of our rejection of God's authority. We view ourselves as autonomous. We view ourselves as the one of being in control, of going out and getting what we want, of, of striving for this and that, or I'm going to fix this. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Right? We think that we are the source of these things in our lives. But ultimately, God is the one who sovereignly gives us all these things. Now, are there times that we do things that mess those things up? Yes, it's called sin. Sometimes we make poor choices, and those poor, cho- poor choices are reflected in the circumstances in our life. Sometimes life is hard because of things outside of your control. Sometimes life is hard because you're a sinner. And the consequences that we must endure. We complain about what God has given us. Lord, why did you give me two sisters? That's what my son says sometimes. Sometimes out of anger, frustration. And I've said before him, does God know everything? Yeah. Is God all-powerful and all-knowing? Yeah. Well, God knew then that you needed two sisters. We laugh at something like that. But how often do we think, God, why is this happening in my life? Why is this happening in my life? Why is this circumstance? And why, why was I born here? Why is my family like this? Why are things like this at work? Why, you know, why, 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 what is happening? In our heart, we're saying, God, you've messed up. I wouldn't do it this way. I would do it a different way. What we're saying is, God, we are rejecting your authority. We think we know better. And while some things are hard and difficult, I'm not denying that. But God has sovereignly placed you through his provision where you are at in your life. We complain, but in our complaining, we are subtly rejecting the sovereignty of God in our lives. And that's a hard thought, but it's necessary. What we have in our lives is directly the result of God's provision and his providence. We love to say, well, I would do it differently, God. We all say that. I say that. But we're not God. And I'm glad it's not up to me. I can't provide for everyone in the world. 
I can't sovereignly orchestrate everything all together and have it all figured out. I'm glad it's not up to me to provide and to plan and to sovereignly see over everything from the dawn of creation until the end of time. Here we see how God is the one who has provided everything. He's the man, he's the landowner who has built a brand new vineyard, equipped it with everything that is necessary. And he gives it to these tenants and says, here, it's least to you, be fruitful with it. The religious leaders are to be caretakers of what God has provided, but they are setting themselves up as the owner and the operator of all that God has given them. That's a tendency in our own lives to think that we are ultimately in control of everything when really we are not, but rather God is. So God's provision demonstrates his authority. Secondly, God's patience. In verse two, when the season came, most commentators uh, say that it's about three or four years for a vineyard to produce its first harvest. So it would be maybe a season or a few years for that to happen. But the time was right. And the man sent a servant. A servant, somebody who worked for him, who was uh, a slave in a sense. And he sent him to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. He didn't send them to get all the fruit of the vineyard to completely take everything, but some, his, his share. This is an investment. He has built this. He's gone away to a different country. Now he's, he's looking for the return on his investment. And he sends a servant. Verse 3, and they took him. Who's the they? That is the tenants. The tenants took him and they beat him. It's the idea of whipping or flogging. And sent him away empty-handed. You're like, that's a little extreme. <laughs> and as we read this passage, it is extreme. And it's almost ridiculous that we think that this would happen. But the ridiculousness of it demonstrates how ridiculous and how serious the rejection of Jesus is by the nation of Israel. So they send a servant. They beat him, send him away empty-handed. Verse 4, again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Verse 5, and he sent another, and him they killed. That's three. They beat the first one. They beat the second one. The third one, they killed they actually killed a man. And we see in verse 5, And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now, if you were the landowner, after the first one, would you be like, what in the world's going on? I need to go make a business trip here. But the landowner again and again sends servants requesting that they provide the fruit that is due him. And over many others he sent. I would have been like, Psh, forget you. I'm going to find some new tenants. <laughs> you are terrible renters. I'm going to move on to somebody else. But here we see the authority of God demonstrated through his patience. He doesn't just wipe his hands clean. But no, he says this in verse 6. He still had one other, a beloved son. This is the same exact phrase taken from Mark chapter 1. When Jesus was baptized. This is my beloved son. So the, it, it's, it's on purpose. Jesus is saying this. This beloved son. It's, it's often used to refer to Jesus. And that's who Jesus is in this parable. So the father sends his beloved son. Why is that important? Well the son. 
in a sense, was a direct representative of the Father. The other people were servants or slaves, but here is one who had the same authority as the Father. He spoke on his behalf, in a sense, because he would fulfill the position. He is the same as the Father. He's not a servant. He's part of the family. He's part of the ownership. And he sends his beloved son to them. And what does he think? He says in the end of verse 6, well, they will respect my son. Right? If a boss, an owner of a company sends in these hirelings, okay, yeah, right, yeah, right, okay, sure, sure. But when the boss himself, somebody who owns part of the company walks in, oh, you know, <clears throat> the guy's here. In high, in high school, I worked for a company, and uh, there were, uh, we did things with hybrid corn and, and things like that, and there were days that we knew that the owner was going to be around, because everybody above us, and we were at the very bottom, us high school kids, they were like, Kate, okay, clean that up. Get the, you, know, you knew that the owner was coming. And there was an owner and then the owner's son who would come as well. And we'd make sure everything was clean and put together. And we, you know, uh, our, our, all our boots were tied. And we had our safety glasses on, all that good stuff. <laughs> because we knew that the owner or the owner's son was coming. And here... The father says, I'm going to send my son. They will listen to him. They will respect him. Verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Again, that's an extreme line of thinking. <laughs> oh, the son's here. If we kill him, we can kind of usurp this authority, and it can be ours now. We're going to take it. They're just a bunch of squatters. And so what did they do? They took him, and they killed him. And they threw him out of the vineyard. An interesting foreshadowing here. Where did Jesus die in relation to Jerusalem? Outside the city. Just as the son here was killed, he was thrown out of the vineyard. Jesus was sent out of the city. He died on a hill outside of Jerusalem. We see God's patience. Again and again, he gave the tenants the opportunity to respond in the right manner. How many did he send? Well, at least three that we know of, plus many more. So maybe another three, six, and then you add in, add in the son. There, there's seven. That's a good Bible number, seven. Maybe he sent seven people. That, that's a lot of opportunities to say, hey, maybe we should stop beating these people and killing them and actually do what the owner wants us to do but they don't. Again and again, they send them away. He's patient. He graciously gave them opportunities. He even sent his own son, the one who was beloved, the person who most closely represented and reflected the landowner himself, but they sought to exploit the son and his position rather than submit themselves to him. What is Jesus implying by this account? The servants that are sent are the prophets, the leaders, the judges, the kings that God sent throughout the history of the Old Testament to warn, to teach, to lead, to correct, and direct. But overwhelmingly, the people rejected these people. They did not listen. So the father eventually sent his very own son. He sent Jesus. And we are in the midst of that sending here in Mark 12. In a sense, Jesus is speaking to the tenants as he's speaking to the religious leaders saying, hey, time's up, rent's due. 
Are you going to listen? And we will see that they do not. One author said this, the religious leaders are acting just like the tenants, viewing the nation of Israel as theirs rather than God's. They foolishly refuse to submit to Jesus, God's son, or to respond to his proclamation of the kingdom of God. As we think of God's patience in our own life and our rejection of his authority, it's amazing how God is patient with us. Again and again and again, demonstrating his patience. There are people who claim that God is unjust, that God is unfeeling and mean, that he needs to give us a chance, just like the religious leaders. But when we stop and think of God's grace and his mercy to us, and the fact that he gave us his very own son, Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, that a God who did not spare his own son, we've had plenty of opportunities to see God's provision and his patience in our lives. His mercy. Every day that we have breath is an act of mercy on God's behalf. For he is just to send us all to hell if we do not know Jesus Christ. But in God's patience, he sent his own son and that is the offer now for us that we would respond in faith to Jesus Christ. But God's patience does not last forever. We see God's authority demonstrated third in God's punishment. This account begs the question then in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus includes that in his parable. What will the owner of the vineyard do? It's rhetorical. And probably in the mind of the religious leaders or the people listening, well, if I was the landowner, I could tell you what I'd do. <laughs> but Jesus says he will come and he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus isn't going to destroy the vineyard. He's not destroying the nation of Israel. He's not destroying anybody and everybody. But no, he is seeking to destroy those who have rejected his authority who have not fulfilled their responsibilities and roles as they had ought to. Verse 10, he then points them to a set of verses from Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. And he says this to them, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He quotes from this psalm that speaks of the cornerstone, that is himself, and the builders are the tenants. They are the ones who were overseeing things. And they looked at Jesus, they said, we don't want that one. And God says, no, that's the one that I want. Jesus is the cornerstone. It is from him that the building is set, that the building goes up and out. It is the point of reference for the entire building. This is who Jesus is. And it's ultimately in God's sovereign provision. This is the Lord's doing, verse 11. And it is marvelous in our eyes. God's punishment upon the tenants, the builders that rejected the cornerstone, they themselves will be rejected. The punishment was coming for the tenants. The punishment and destruction was coming for the religious leaders. For those of us who do not know Jesus Christ as our Savior, the punishment and judgment is coming for our sin. 
Verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him. That is the religious leaders. But they feared the people, right? Because they perceive that he had told the parable against them. The religious leaders finally understood something that Jesus said. That he was going to destroy them. And what was their response? It was not one of submission to the authority of God saying, Jesus, please have mercy on us. Please forgive us. Help us, Lord. No, they sought to destroy him. It's so interesting. They, in the response to the parable, are completely fulfilling what the parable said. Rather than submitting themselves to the authority of God in Jesus and in who he is, they didn't like what they heard, so they said, you know what? How can we kill him? How can we destroy him? How can we arrest him? They are completely and fully rejecting the authority of God in their lives. One author said this, Though God demonstrates extraordinary patience and mercy, his patience will not last forever, and persistent rebellion results in judgment. In Isaiah's Song of the Vineyard, the wall of protection is broken down and the Assyrian hordes devastate Israel. It's from Isaiah 5, as I mentioned. And in Jesus' parable, it is not the vineyard that is judged, but the tenant farmers representing Israel's leaders. Their rejection and murder of the son results in their own destruction and the vineyard passing to the care of others. Those who reject the authority of God, those who reject his clear teaching, judgment awaits. Hell is a very real thing. And it is reserved for those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, who are sinners, who have rejected the authority of God. Our points in our outline are our clear points of application this morning. The provision of God through His revelation and through the blessing in our lives. Have you seen how God has provided for you? First of all, through Jesus Christ the Savior, the one who can forgive your sins and give you hope in a broken world. God has provided that for you through Jesus Christ. He's given us his word where we can know about Christ and, and God's heart for us and how he calls us to live then as his followers. Through the daily provisions in our life of breath, the fact that the sun comes up this morning. There's no guy sitting somewhere whose job it is to turn down the moon and turn up the sun. God does that. <laughs> he has set that in motion. God's provision in our lives. God's patience in our lives with our sin. And his mercy, grace, and forgiveness. If you know Jesus as your Savior, the wonderful mercy and grace and patience of God as we stumble along. We stumble. We stumble in our Christian life. But my prayer is that is as we stumble, at least we're walking uphill. We're becoming more like Jesus. And that's how our lives are. There's mercy and grace there. But there's also patience for God for those who do not know Jesus. If you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you understand that you are a sinner, that you have rebelled against God, that you do things against God that are not according to how he calls us to live. God is patiently waiting. He is demonstrating patience for you through his son, and he's, he's, he's calling to you, he's saying, confess your sin, trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That patience is there. But understand, that patience does not last forever. 
And that punishment will come to those who reject him, who deny him, who live their lives for themselves. Denying God's authority in our lives does not remove it from our lives. You can't sit there this morning and think, well, I'll worry about that later. There's no procrastinating when it comes to God. For you don't know what your life holds. You don't know if you'll make it home this morning. You don't know what it may look like this week. You don't know what news is waiting for you. You cannot continue to reject and ignore the authority of God in your life for it does not remove it. We often don't like to think of authority in our relation to it. We like to be the captain of our own souls. But we are all created beings dependent upon a creator to a God that we're accountable, a holy God like we sang about. But you know what the wonderful thing is? That holy God has provided the way of salvation for us. He is patient with us as we work, as we grow, as we live for Christ, or as we struggle with our own sin. He's being patient with us. But understand that ultimately that holy God will demonstrate punishment and justice through sending people to hell, through condemning them for their sin. So the plea is this morning, is do not deny the authority of God. Confess your sin, trust in Jesus. And as you live your life, understand that through God's provision, his patience, and his ultimate punishment of sin and those who reject him, he will be glorified. How are we stewarding the gospel? How are we responding to the authority of Christ? How are we using the faith that God has given us? May we respond to God's authority in humility and seek to live with it, under it, understanding that though he is a holy, righteous God, he is a good and kind God who calls us to live for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to Look at your word, Lord, that you bid us to come and to see who Jesus is, that he is the Savior, the one who will die for us, who has died for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, that we may be made right with you, that though we are unrighteous and sinful, Jesus is perfect, and he took our punishment, and we get his perfection so that we can stand before you. Lord, I pray for those here who may not know Christ as Savior, that they would humble themselves under your authority and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. For those of us who know Christ, help us to live our lives not for our own kingdom, but for yours. Living our lives to bring you honor and glory. Lord, we love you. Pray for all this in your son's name. Amen.